Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Patrick Slaney. Today I'm talking to David Sapkowski about his new book, Rereading the Fossil Record, The Growth of Paleobiology as an Evolutionary Discipline. In the book, Sapkowski tells a story that explains the many ways that paleontologists have interpreted the meaning and importance of fossils in light in the light of evolutionary theory. Starting with Darwin and his own dilemma concerning the fossil record, Sapkowski traces the relationships between paleontology and evolutionary theory over the course of the 20th century. As it was formulated in the, mid, in, in the mid-century, the evolutionary synthesis did not really allow paleontology to contribute to evolution, evolutionary theory, and it fell to a self-consciously revolutionary generation of paleontologists in the 1970s to argue that reading the fossil record could change the theory of evolution. Drawing on increasingly sophisticated ways of modeling and simulating evolutionary processes, as well as increasingly available computational power, paleobiologists built institutions and articulated ideas, such as punctuated equilibria, mass extinction, extinction and, and macroevolution, that demonstrated how the history of life revealed by reading the fossil record needs to be incorporated into evolutionary theory. Hi, David. Hi, Patrick. Um, welcome to the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks so much for having me. We're talking today about your new book, Reading the Fossil Record, The Growth of Paleobiology as an Evolutionary Discipline. But before we jump into it, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Sure. Well, um, yeah, it's kind of a, a little bit of a convoluted story. I'll keep it short here. But I actually trained as a, a historian of early modern mathematics uh, back in the uh, late 1990s at the University of Minnesota in the History of Science and Technology program there. And... Um, my father was a, was a paleobiologist, and in fact, uh, he, Jack Sapkowski, is, is, is one of the characters in, in this book. Um, and I really had no interest in, in writing, uh, uh, you know, writing a book or, or doing any work on the history of, of modern paleontology or biology, uh, really until I finished up my PhD at Minnesota, which was on 17th century mathematics. And, uh, my father died in 1999, and in the process of um, helping an archivist at the American Philosophical Society collect his papers to be deposited there, uh, I, I just started reading things. You know, I'm a historian, and that's what we do when, we, when we've got a bunch of letters and manuscripts uh, in, in front of us. I started looking at things as, as I was putting them into boxes, and I realized, wow, there's some, some really interesting stuff here. There was correspondence with people like Stephen Jay Gould, and, uh, and, and it, it seemed like the period of time when, uh, when my dad had been active in the, the 1970s and, and 1980s especially uh, was just a really fascinating and exciting time in, in paleontology. And so I, I thought, well, you know, there's, there's at least a paper here. Uh, and I had a postdoc at the time at, at Oberlin College. Uh, and so I was sort of thinking about what my next project would be, and I had a little time. And so I, I wrote a paper uh, about this era, the 1970s in, in paleobiology when, um, when people like Stephen Jay Gould really advocated uh, uh, very strongly for paleontology to be a kind of independent evolutionary discipline. And I had so much fun writing that paper, I decided to write a book and, and basically gave up being an early modernist and, and became full-time a historian of, 
modern biology and and uh, and paleontology. Um, and uh, and yeah, really kind of a transition in my in my intellectual uh, career, but one that's that's really uh, brought me a lot of pleasure. It's been it's been a lot of fun working on this stuff. Okay, so. Uh... Did you do a lot of Latin at least as an early modern mathematician? Yeah, yeah. Math? I, I had to do all I had to do all that stuff, and uh, you know I, it's fun, and I still love the early modern period. I mean, yeah. I still still read the literature, and yeah. and, and I've I, you know I, I love teaching scientific revolution and things like that. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I mean that was I, one one could say that 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 was uh, all for naught because I use most of that training yeah. in, in what I do now, although it probably informs me somewhere in the background. Yeah. Although I was going to say that at least it's not entirely for naught, because at least there's still, you know, some Latin in paleontology. <laughs> well, they're right, exactly. Yeah. The, the, the taxonomic names. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, I mean, the book is mostly about the 1970s, but you, you kind of argue that, um, in I think, in order to understand the relationship between evolutionary thinking and um, paleontology, you need to go back to Darwin. So can you say a little bit about how Darwin thinks about fossils and what sort of the sure. legacy of that is? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, and of course, you know, fossils are, are, are crucially important for uh, evolutionary theory, and they were very, very important to, to Darwin. Um, you know, fossils had had um, first really begun to be seen as biologically significant entities uh, in the era era of geology uh, before Darwin. So in the uh, in the 1820s, 1830s, fossils are, are being primarily used as as markers for stratigraphy. You know, as as markers to tell us, um, relatively speaking, how old different layers of the Earth are. But beginning in the 1830s and 1840s, especially in in Germany and France and England, um, geologists began to to begin to take fossils seriously as as telling us something about the history of life and. Um, and perhaps something about the directionality in the history of life. Although, of course, for, for most scientists, not as uh, indications of, of evolution. Uh, and, and Darwin, uh, during his, his, his Beagle voyage and, and afterwards, took a great interest in fossils. And, and I think it's, it's fair to say that they were you know, crucial pieces of evidence in convincing him of the reality of of descent with modification uh, and evolution. So they're, they're the physical evidence that, that tells Darwin that, that uh, evolution has, has taken place. But the um, kind of the, the interesting paradox, uh, which is one of the, the hinges on which my book turns, is that despite the fact that, that Darwin recognized fossils as being tremendously important for establishing the reality of evolution, um, he didn't really believe that the fossil record was was complete enough for paleontology to make much of an independent contribution to uh, evolutionary theory. So he thought that uh, you know, there were too many gaps, too much incompleteness. Darwin, of course, has a whole chapter in the, in the Origin of Species about the imperfection of the geological record, where he sort of apologizes for it, says, well, you know, um, if we had a perfect fossil record, we would see this gradual succession of forms from the you know very first organisms up to the up to the present but but we don't so the best that we can do is is look to those um those particular cases where we do have a, a complete succession but don't expect to find uh you know transitional forms throughout the fossil record and as i argue at least um you know this this was a kind of pessimistic um diagnosis 
for the development of modern paleontology. You know, paleontology is told basically that, you know, it, it's capable of presenting interesting uh, examples uh, of, of evolutionary succession, but it doesn't, it won't have much to say on its own. And certainly by the, by the early part of the 20th century and up into the modern evolutionary synthesis, paleontologists were really kind of relegated to a backseat role when it, when it came to discussions of evolutionary theory. And, you know, in part, I, I lay that blame, if you want to, want to say blame, uh, you know, right at Darwin's door. Okay. Um, so does anything change by the evolutionary synthesis? What's the relationship with sort of, I mean, yeah. this is a, it's a major change in the way that people think about evolution. Does it change the way that people think about the relationship between evolutionary theory and paleontology at all? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's important to point out that, that, that despite the fact that kind of mainstream biology uh, took a fairly dim view of the contribution that, that paleontology could make to, to evolutionary thought, Paleontologists themselves, from the period after Darwin, from the 1880s, 1890s, up through the 1930s and 40s, were making statements about evolution on fossils. Uh, it's just that, that their, their statements about evolution uh, weren't really being heard or taken very seriously by the um, you know, developed profession of, of, of modern evolutionary biology. Uh, and, and part of the problem there is that many of these paleontologists favored uh, non-Darwinian mechanisms, mm. things like, um, um, you know, Lamarckian evolution or orthogenesis, uh, and that kind of kept them kept them marginal in the in the community of evolutionary biology. But by the by the 1930s and 1940s, I think two things had happened. The the first was that more fossils had been collected. So, you know, the more fossils you collect, the, the more complete your, your record and the more you're going to be able to say, or at least the more confidence you're going to have about what you can say about evolution based on the fossil record. And then the second thing was that there were uh, some important pioneering paleontologists, both in, in Europe and in the United States. Uh, in Europe, people like the uh, Austrian paleontologist Othin Abel, um, and, in, and in the United States, uh, of course, George Gaylord Simpson, um, who really made a, a strong commitment to um, have biologists and to, to trying to, um, you know, really incorporate their work into some of the exciting developments that were going on in, in you know, genetics and, and other areas of biology that were uh, leading to the modern synthesis. So how did Simpson in particular think about um, the co possible contribution of paleontology to evolutionary understanding? Well, yeah, I think Simpson, um, you know, Simpson's probably the most important figure in the uh, in the history of uh, in the 20th century history of evolutionary paleontology because he's the one who really gets the ball rolling. Um, he was one of the first people to begin to refer to what he was doing as paleobiology, which was was he didn't invent. It had been used by some of those uh, German paleontologists earlier in the century, but. But Simpson was also one of the only people that read in, in the United States or in the, uh, in the Anglo-American uh, paleontological community who read paleontology. Um, and so he picked up a lot of ideas from, from the Germans. Um, and, and Simpson, um, Simpson really, uh, it was in part because of his position at uh, the American Museum of, of Natural History. Uh, you know, he ended up having colleagues like Ernst Meyer, 
and Theodosius Dobzhansky, and you know, he got to know these people personally uh, because the the AMNH uh, is affiliated with Columbus, where um, where both Dobzhansky and Meyer um, you know passed through at various points in their in their career, um, and so he got to know these people personally, um, and he also uh, I think he he just personally had ambitions for for himself and for the field. Uh, he didn't want Paleontologists were doing to be marginalized in journals that were read only by paleontologists. They really wanted biologists to take uh, to take their work work seriously, and so he was committed not to reaching out to biologists to incorporating uh, biological contributions to evolutionary theory into paleontology, uh, but also to begin to use some of the that biologists were were using at the time. So to make paleontology more uh, quantitative, uh, and to begin uh, exploring what one could do with uh, more sophisticated mathematics and and even and even modeling uh, in uh, applying analysis to the history of the fossil record. Mm, okay, and actually, this theme of sort of the need to build institutions um, is something that I think you developed really well through the book, and, and we can return to a little bit. Um, did he tra- did Simpson train graduate students? I mean, that's one way of institutional building. Didn't have a lot of graduate students, but but curators at the American Museum could be on uh, on dissertation committees at Columbia, and uh, and indeed could. And he did. Simpson did direct uh, a, a few graduate theses, although he didn't do a lot. He was not, uh, I don't think, deeply committed as a as a teacher. Uh, I think he saw his. his more as a as a researcher, um, one of Simpson's students was uh, the uh, very eclectic evolutionary biologist uh, Lee Van Valen, who passed away, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, was a, a longtime professor at the University of Chicago, and uh, Van Valen actually shared uh, Simpson and Dobzhansky as his as his mentors. So, I mean, there's a great example of um, you know direct through teaching and, and directing uh, graduate how how Simpson was integrating what he was doing with what obviously one of the uh, most important biologists of the synthesis was, was, was doing. Um, But, uh, you know, he had a more indirect influence, I think, on, on the generation of paleontologists who were coming up, especially in the 1960s, who, who, uh, all of whom read his, 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 his book, uh, I mean that was required reading really for for young paleontologists uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and so I'd say he'd had he had a, a profound influence on young paleontologists, but in a more indirect sense. Okay, so the other um, pioneering sort of paleontologist in this time period that you think is really influential is uh, Norman Newell. How did he uh, contribute to the growth of and, um, paleobiology? Newell was Newell was really. Um, uh, very much kind of Simpson's partner in in this enterprise of of bringing paleon, paleontology into evolutionary biology, especially in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, Simpson's a vertebrate so um, was working with was from the vertebrate uh, fossil record, uh, and uh, of course vertebrate fossils are. Far- hey David, welcome back. Sorry about that interruption. Oh no, no problem at all. Okay. Before um, we left or were interrupted, you were talking about uh, Norman Newell and his kind of broader significance in the in the story. Sure, sure. Yeah, and and 
And what I was saying is that is that uh, Newell and Simpson really kind of need to be seen as a team in in this earlier period of the establishment of of paleobiology in the in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, Simpson was a was a vertebrate paleontologist. So um, the fossil record that Simpson was studying was, of course, the the vertebrate fossil record. And um, one of the one of the issues um, between vertebrate and invertebrate paleontology is that there are a lot more invertebrate fossils. So, you know, uh, just think about all the uh, tiny little shells that you see, let's say, in um, uh, you know, in limestone or something like that. I mean, there are there are orders of magnitude more invertebrate remains than than vertebrate remains. It, it takes kind of a lot actually for a large animal to get uh, fossilized and preserved. So, um, so what Simpson was trying to do was very ambitious, but his own research uh, wasn't necessarily the best. Uh, didn't necessarily provide the best empirical evidence to fully document the history of life. And Simpson thought it was very important to recruit a, an invertebrate paleontologist uh, into uh, the American Museum and, and into sort of the, the kind of proto-movement that he was beginning. So Simpson directly hired Norman Newell in the, in the 1940s, shortly after the, the Second World War, um, and brought Newell to the, to the museum as a, as a young paleontologist. And uh, Newell really, I think, developed under Simpson's wing in a lot of ways in, in the first five or ten years that he was there. Uh, and, and ultimately what, what Newell did was essentially to carry on the kind of work Simpson was doing, and that is uh, work that was uh, quantitative and theoretical and which was geared towards reconstructing large-scale patterns in the history of life. Only Newell was doing it with invertebrate fossils, and uh, for this reason, uh, in, in many respects, I would say that the Newell was just import, as important, if not even more important, than Simpson uh, to later generations of, of paleobiologists who really would focus um, predominantly on the invertebrate fossil record. So the kind of work that, that Newell was doing, documenting large-scale patterns of evolutionary change in um in you know the marine fossil record in in, in marine fossils uh, was uh, exactly what was continued in the 1970s and 1980s uh, in the later chapters that I describe in my book when uh, paleobiology really goes through a kind of revolutionary phase and and Newell also trained uh, more students than than Simpson did and and some of the students that he trained went on really to be the the leaders in this next generation uh, uh, probably the two most prominent being uh, Stephen Jay Gould and uh, Niles Eldridge, who together were uh, the the people that came up with the theory of punctuated equilibria. Right. Um, let me ask you a question about them. So, I mean, I think we often think about biology as a discipline that's supposed to take time and history seriously. Right. And I guess I'm wondering about Simpson and Newell. Did they want to sort of incorporate paleontology with biology because they were. They just thought that biology was cool, or did they think that paleontology had something, I guess, important to contribute about the history of life to the to the understanding of evolution? Sure. Um, well, um, Simpson's first book, uh, which is considered still by many to be uh, his most important contribution, Tempo and Mode in Evolution, which was published in uh, 1945 uh, in the famous uh, Columbia University Press um, biology series that also had Dobzhansky's 
uh, Genetics and the Origin of Species and Myers, Systematic and the Origin of Species and, and, and other important books, um, made the case uh, that paleontology offers a fourth dimension to evolutionary biology, and that fourth dimension is time. So um, I, the answer to your question is, is that Simpson absolutely thought that uh, time was the you know significant dimension that that paleontology could add, and that it added a perspective to evolutionary biology that was simply not there uh, otherwise. So so paleontology wasn't just wasn't just um, you know adding something interesting. Uh, that this synthesis of, of paleontology and biology wasn't just a good idea for uh, institutional purposes or something like that, but but rather that the paleontology offered something vital crucial and 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 missing to the story of the history of life okay um, do biologists agree with them well I mean you know that's 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 a good question and that's the um, you know that's kind of the sixty four thousand dollar question uh, throughout the history that I'm describing in my book and the answer to that is that some did and some didn't um, and and it was complicated and, and contested along the way. Simpson, of course, was one of the, is considered one of the architects of the modern evolutionary synthesis, along with Meyer and Dobzhansky. And he was very much an equal partner in terms of the organizational role that he played in, say, establishing the Society for the Study of Evolution, um, founding the journal Evolution, um, and uh, kind of organizing the agenda of the modern synthesis. Uh, Meyer and Dobzhansky and, and other major uh, framers of the modern synthesis, uh, Sewell Wright uh, and others, uh, certainly respected him as a scientist. Um, the, how much, though, did they, did they accept the um, kind of the theoretical intervention that he was trying to make is another mm-hmm. story together. Uh, and, and what you see is that you know, in some cases, and and at some times, biologists were quite receptive to what people like Simpson had to say. But there was a constant pushback, also from the biologists, that that goes from the 1940s all the way, um, I'd say, even up to the present, uh, in being somewhat uncomfortable with the notion that paleontology has something autonomous, uh, say, about about evolutionary history. Uh, and particularly, I think there's a deep-seated skepticism or mistrust among biologists that perhaps what paleontologists are really trying to say is that there are different evolutionary mechanisms in operation that paleontology has access to. And, and there's some, I think, nervousness that, that paleontologists are actually trying to talk about evolutionary mechanisms that are different from the ones that, uh, that, you know, um, geneticists or other biologists study. And so that that back and forth has really characterized the history of the relationship between paleontology and biology over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Okay. And we'll get we'll get there <laughs> in, in particular. Um, but maybe before we get to the to the sort of the revolutionary characters themselves, um, I mean the other thing that tends out to be very, very important is really just the sophisticated modeling that um, the self-declared paleo biologists of the 1970s um, bring to the table. Um, and, and you sort of talk about in, how in the 50s and 60s, there's a growth of, tech, of techniques for mathematically modeling biological f- 
phenomena. Right. Um, things like morphometrics and theoretical morphology and island biogeography and paleoecology. How do those, I mean, what are they doing that's new and how does that knowledge make its way into paleobiology? Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the, I think, really interesting characteristics of this paleobiology movement is the extent to which paleobiologists were borrowing um, ideas, models, techniques, methods from other disciplines. And, and uh, you know, say, uh, uh, island biogeography, which develops independently in the 1960s, is, is crucially important to, to paleobiology, but it's, you know, it's not a theory from paleontology. Um, you know, in some cases, <clears throat> in some cases, these these approaches were were really new and original. So so thinking about um, say assemblage, assemblages of fossils as communities uh, in in paleoecology is a, is a really new way of thinking about the history of life, uh, and that's something that develops in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, theoretical morphology, which is uh, an approach to understanding uh, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the kind of mathematical relationships uh, that govern the formal characteristics of organisms, say the um, the relationship between the um, the the height and the width of a of a, a shell or something like that. That's actually a very old um, field, uh, an old tradition that goes back into the into the 19th century, um, but um, in the hands of paleontologists in the 1960s especially, um, and here uh, the paleontologist David Raup, uh, who, who had a long career at the University of Chicago, was uh, one of the, the real movers, um, were able to adapt new technologies, um, computers, mm-hmm. uh, most prominently to the study of old questions. So, for example... It had been known for a long time that, that there are particular equations that govern the ideal shape of uh, certain kinds of shells. And those equations were from, from the 18, uh, 1840s. Uh, but what Ralph was able to do was put those equations into a computer and produce uh, these, these wonderful simulations of ideal uh, shell types. Uh, and so it's an interesting marriage of old ideas and new technologies that, uh, that kind of help produce this, this, uh, this new approach to the study of the fossil record using, you know, using in some cases simulations rather than relying just on uh, the fossils that were being dug up out of the ground. Okay. And so it's just that Raup learns this and then he trains people and, and realizes that it has significance? Yeah, I mean, you know, Ralph kind of um, Ralph kind of falls into this accidentally. Uh, he was trained as a as a fairly straightforward uh, invertebrate paleontologist. Um, he, he worked at Harvard uh, under uh, Bernard Cummel, who was a, a, a longtime Harvard professor, uh, who actually was Norman Newell's first student. Um, but Ralph was trained in, in, in fairly traditional approaches to invertebrate paleontology, um, and he kind of happened on computers accidentally. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, Ralph was always interested in iconoclastic ideas. Um, he was always the person who wanted to ask um, the question that would potentially upset the conventional wisdom. Um, and so um, I think that um, that 
that Ralph was always just kind of pursuing the interesting questions uh, that popped into his head uh, without really thinking about launching a movement. Um, and the students that Ralph trained were um, uh, kind of an eclectic group of group of people. Um, but but Ralph tended to just always, for some reason, to have his uh, you know kind of finger on the on the pulse of 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 what was new and and interesting in the field. So in the 1960s, it was uh, this theoretical morphology, which was uh, uh, a, a kind of a, a rekindling of interest in the uh, in the mathematical study of, as, as I said, the, the the kind of formal properties or characteristics of uh, of biological forms. And um, this is something that goes back to Darcy Wentworth Thompson in the in the in the early 20th century. Um, and Ralph spent several years making these pretty uh, computer model shells, uh, and then kind of lost interest in that and moved on to something else. Um, and, and that was typical of Ralph's career. He'd work on something for several years, and then he'd find something else that was interesting and kind of drop what he'd been working on before. Um, and so, uh, you know, Ralph, as opposed to some of the other people that that um, that we'll be we, we'll be talking about later, I don't think was really committed so much to movement building as it was to just um, asking questions that had asked before, looking at things looking at things in a new perspective. Okay, he certainly has a long and really dynamic career that remains relevant all the way I think to the to the end of his research life, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So you use this phrase about people concerned to launch a movement, and several of the characters, I mean, the important characters associated with um, paleobiology in the 1970s, self-consciously think about themselves as revolutionaries. And, you know, right. some of them have read Kuhn, and they, you know, think, right. seem to think about science in, the, in those exact terms. Yeah. Um, what exactly is it that they're revolting against? Sure. Um, well, you know, some of it is just a continuation of what uh, people like Simpson and Newell were were themselves rebelling against. Although I don't think that either Simpson or Newell would have would have uh, thought of himself as a as a revolutionary. You know, just this idea that uh, you know paleontology is uh, the biological equivalent of stamp collecting, and that you know paleontologists have nothing interesting to say to to biologists. But but I think that I think there's more to it, and something that I didn't get very deeply into in the book because it's very difficult to document is that of course the late 1960s and 1970s are a you know an era of rebellion and and revolution you know politically and socially and um, some of these people Stephen Jay Gould in particular uh, you know were very much part of that uh, that culture of of rebellion so I think that you know the the 1960s and 70s um, it was a good time to be pushing back against what, you know, the old graybeards had, you know, had to say. And so um, I think for, for somebody like Simpson, uh, somebody like Gould, excuse me, you know, I think he would have been a rebel in whatever field he was in. Mm-hmm. That was part of his temper. And he happened to be a paleontologist. And, uh, and so, um, you know, his, his entire career was spent kind of campaigning against orthodoxy uh, in, in a, you know, in a, in a variety of, in a variety of forms, unlike somebody like Dave Rout, who I think, um, you know, didn't see what he was doing as, as part of any kind of broader social or political movement. I think Gould very much did see what he was doing as, uh, as you know, the work in paleontology as connected to broader, you know, protest, uh, a broader cultural protest and, and rebellion in, in politics and, 
and, and culture. Um, but, but, you know, to get back to the question you asked, what were they rebelling against? I mean, specifically, it was this notion that paleontology is um, really just a subfield of geology, uh, that it didn't have anything relevant to say to biology, and that uh, the, the evidence that, that paleontologists were working, for, working with wasn't relevant to uh, the, the really exciting fields in biology like uh, population genetics and, and, and eventually um, uh, molecular, molecular biology. Okay. So that, I mean, I can tell us about the revolt against what biologists think of paleontology. How do pa- paleontologists feel about um, the established communities sort of in the 50s and 60s? How do they feel about this desire to incorporate all of these mathematical techniques and the de- desire to incorporate evolutionary theory, I guess, into paleontology? Sure, yeah, and that's a great question, um, because, of course, people like Gould were, were not just rebelling against biology. They were also rebe- rebelling against paleontologists. So, um, uh, the you know, the, the paleobiology movement did, uh, certainly in the 1970s, very much have a kind of, you know, us-against-the-world mentality, because it's a small group of people who are not only... Uh, questioning the status of, of paleontology within evolutionary biology, but they're also trying to change in some ways the definition of what paleontology was. And, and this did not sit very well with a lot of more traditional paleontologists who really thought that what a paleontologist did was, uh, you know, dig up and describe fossil organisms, uh, write, you know, monographs about uh, a particular, uh, you know, taxonomic group, and maybe at the end of a very long career, say something slightly more general about the history of life, but certainly not make large-scale pronouncements about uh, the tempo and mode of, of, of evolution. So, yeah, the, 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 the paleobiologists, certainly by the 1970s, were kind of getting it from both directions. They were, they were getting resistance from, from biologists, and they were getting resistance from from uh, from pa- other paleontologists, and um, and I think that that certainly heightened the sense for people like Gould uh, that uh, you know that that what they were doing was was radical and rebellious. Okay, so instead of just being doing descriptive biology and strat- stratigraphy, and then making when when you're the president of the society making a few remarks about it, biology, you're going to do something a bit more dramatic. Um, yeah. I mean, Gould's first, uh, Gould's first paper, uh, first published paper from 1960, now I can't remember exactly what the date was, I want to say 1967, but it might have been earlier, was titled, Is Uniformitarianism Necessary? You know, and of course, uniformitarianism, the, the, the idea that, you know, we understand geological processes as being slow and continuous, um, uh, and, and this is Charles Lyell's uh, big uh, contribution uh, from the 19th century, you know, that's the, that's the, the heart of, mm. of, you know, what every paleontologist learned uh, in, in their training. And here's Gould as a, as a graduate student writing a paper saying, uh, you know, maybe that's the wrong way to think about geology. Uh, and, you know, that certainly set the tone for, you know, for what was to come. He goes straight for the bedrock to make a really good yeah. metaphor. And there's a, I mean, there, there's a, a passage that I actually quote in the in the in the book um, from an interview I did with with Niles Eldridge, uh, who was coming up with Gould at Columbia uh, in the in the late 1960s, and he says, you know, what Gould taught him as a graduate student was you don't wait until you're an old man to make your important contributions. You know that that 
that the young should, you know, should be kind of you know, seizing, seizing the profession. And that's precisely what, what these folks did. Okay. So what of the, I mean, they're very canny about their revolt or, and, and seizing the profession. And uh, one of the things that they do do and that they think about sort of very seriously is kind of building institutions for this new paleobiology, right? And these include things like monographs, but also conferences and a, a, a journal um, and a society, I think. So, how does how did that work out, and and were they, how successful were they? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things that that I um, argue in the book is that within this small group of people that were really kind of the the heart of the paleobiological movement in the 1970s and 1980s, um, uh, different people had different fairly specific roles. So, um, Raup was the guy who was kind of coming up with the radical ideas. Um, Gould was the guy who was doing the propaganda, um, who was, you know, writing both professional and popular um, articles and books uh, that were making the case for, for paleobiology. Uh, and then uh, someone that, that most people outside of paleontology won't probably be very familiar with, um, Tom Schaff, Thomas J.M. Schaff, who was a, a paleontologist at the University of Chicago, was really the guy that um, took the institutional approach. Um, he was the one who uh, instigated for the founding of the journal Paleobiology in uh, in 1975. Uh, he, he was really working behind the scenes and doing a lot of the a lot of the grunt work um, that's necessary for any movement to have a to have a platform from from which it can project itself. And 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 what I argue is that you know these activities are very coordinated. Raup and Schaff and Gould are um, friends and, and close colleagues. Uh, they're having meetings, informal meetings. Uh, they're in correspondence all the time, you know, kind of coordinating uh, the, these different elements of, you know, what one could describe as this paleobiological revolution. And I think that it was very clear to, to all of them right from the start that the institutional side of things was going to be vitally important, that, that ideas aren't enough. You need to have places to publish, you need to be able to train students, uh, you need to be able to get jobs, you know, for, for your students once, uh, you know, once they've, once they've finished. Um, and so I think that this, this movement wouldn't have had the success that it did have uh, without this institutional agenda. And Tom Schopp, uh, uh was, I mean, I think that, that uh, without Tom Schopp, the, the, the movement wouldn't have had that success because he is the one who really pushed the institutional agenda uh, most, uh, you know, vigorously. And so there wasn't a sort of broad disagreement. They're quite unified about what the agenda should be and how to go about doing it. Yeah, there, there was there was internal disagreement over um, certainly many kind of intellectual matters. Um, but there was a, a, a shared common commitment to this central Platform, which was that you know, a um, paleontology is biology. Mm-hmm. B, uh, the history of 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 life, the the fossil record, is a a, a vital uh, body of empirical data for the understanding of evolution. Uh, C, that uh, quantitative, you know, mathematical techniques are um, are the the way understand um this this history of life um and then you know d uh that 
techniques like modeling and simulation that, that take us, um, you know, away from just the empirical fossil record are important tools. So, um, you know, on, on those four points, I think that, that the, the instigators of this paleobiological movement, and there are other people had group, uh, certainly Steve Stanley, um, and, um, you know, Niles Eldridge, who I'm, whom I've mentioned, uh, James Valentine, important paleoecologist. But, but those three people, Raup, Schopp, and Gould, I think were, were, were deeply committed on those four points. Now, of course, they did disagree, uh, on, on many particulars, uh, and, and many of those disagreements were very, very interesting, and, um, and I, I document a lot of those in the second half. Um, and as an exercise in institution building, it's pretty successful. Um, is paleobiology, that's the journal they found, um, is it successful because they get paleontologists to read it or biologists to read it? Or I guess who's, who is the audience for this new uh, field? Well, right. Right from the get-go, the idea was that this would be a journal that would be both read and contributed to by paleontologists and biologists. So the um, the initial editorial board was composed of um, you know, biologists as well as paleontologists. Uh, Shop made a real effort. Shop was the was the founding editor. Um, made a, a real effort to recruit biologists to uh, publish papers in the first uh, several issues of the journal. Uh, always used biologists as reviewers of papers uh, alongside paleontologists, and and this was was I would say pretty successful. Um, I don't think that every evolutionary biologist you know, subscribe to or, or reads paleobiology, but certainly um, more biologists read it than we're reading more traditional journals like the Journal of Paleontology or um, um, uh, the, the journal uh, Paleontology, which is which is published in Britain. Um, so it was successful there, but I would say that it was probably more successful in attracting uh, a readership of paleontologists who were drawn to this new paleobiological approach. So, you know, it, it became a, a kind of focal point for paleontologists who maybe had been feeling, you know, dissatisfied uh, with uh, the, you know, the traditional approach to paleontology uh, and, 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 and provided a, you know, a venue for, for, for those people and a kind of a, a, a community. Uh, people with shared interests. Okay, so for paleologists that wanted to do more than descriptive um, taxonomies and that sorts of stuff. Yeah. Okay, um, so let's get to the ideas, because, you know, institutions are important, but there's also a number of, I guess, ideas that are immediately associated with paleobiology, and I guess the most significant one, or the most famous one, is this idea of punctuated equilibrium. Right. Um, what is the idea, I mean, not what is the exact idea, but where do the ideas come from, how are they adapted and developed? Sure. Um, well, and, and of course, I'll just say very briefly for, for anybody who might be listening who isn't familiar with the theory. I mean, the theory of punctuated equilibri, equilibria a or equil, equilibrium, it's, 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 um, presented in both, in both forms, um, uh, is a theory that, that says that, uh, the history of life is not always the slow, continuous, uh, development that, that Darwin had, had proposed, that in fact, um, certain lineages go through long periods where they don't change very much. Uh, stasis can be many millions of years, punctuated by very short bursts of evolutionary change. And so what you get is a more, a more jerky picture of evolution. And indeed, one of the epithets that was 
um, uh, thrown against uh, Gould and Eldridge by an opponent of punctuated equilibrium is that the theory is evolution by jerks. And of course, uh, there was a double entendre there. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, so um, the, uh, so, so the, sorry, the, after saying that, I, I sort of forgot the, the, the first part of the question. It was, it was what made it so important? Is that? Not so much what way to more, but I guess where do the ideas come from? Um, and then, you know, it, they're, they're just ideas sitting in, well, Eldridge's dissertation, right? And then they right. get magnified into this right. kind of right. discipline defining idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, the ideas behind punctuated equilibria were around for a long time. Um, I mean, you can even trace back to Darwin ideas about rapid change, rapid speciation. Um, certainly Ernst Meyer, when he presented um, his uh, yeah, theory of allopatric um, uh, speciation, um, uh, peripheral isolation as being central in um, the uh, in the, the evolution of new species. Essentially, the idea is that if you get a small population uh, uh, isolated uh, because of population genetics, there will be faster. Uh, genetic change in that population in that most cases of speciation will take place amongst these uh, these small peripherally isolated populations. I mean, that was an idea from the, from the 19, 1940s. And, and all Eldridge was really trying to do in his dissertation, which was on Newtonian trilobites, was apply um, what he called sort of the dominant biological model of speciation to the fossil record and, and show that, indeed, what the fossil record tells us is that uh, speciation tends to take place fairly rapidly in isolated populations. He didn't present this in any way as a, as a, as a new theory uh, or any kind of revolutionary revision of evolutionary thought. But somehow, when Eldridge and Gould got together a couple of years after Eldridge finished his dissertation uh, and wrote their first paper on punctuated equilibria, uh, this idea got transferred mostly thanks to Gould, into a revolutionary new um, approach to understanding the history of life. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a, talking about the history of that theory, punctuated equilibrium, is, is, is complicated because in, in one version, it's fairly straight a fairly straightforward reading of what uh, population biologists have been saying for quite a long time. Uh, in another reading, it's this radical new theory of the history of life. And even the authors themselves, Gould and Eldridge, were never very consistent in terms of sometimes it was being presented as, you know, this is just what we've known for a long time. What's the big deal? And sometimes it was, you know, uh, you know, this new radical idea that um, is going to change the way that we think about evolution. Okay. So it's really, I mean, Gould's contribution is this, this master of rhetoric that uh, builds on things and can project them outwards, I guess, right? Sure, and and I think that you know what what happened. I spend an entire chapter on situated yeah. uh, equilibria in in the book, uh, in part because that's exactly what I want to show. I want to show how Gould yeah, and kind of bends it to the agenda um, of paleobiology that he is in the process in 1972, uh, really trying to to launch out into the world. Okay, so by the sort of mid 70s, you've got I think what is convincingly sort of a, a discipline that's got, that's coherent that's people that are talking to each other that are doing something new that's applying all these mathematical models to the fossil record mm -hmm. um 
But one of the things you you argue and, and show is that there's actually quite a few different ways of rereading the fossil record. Um, and one of the ones that I think people get the most excited about or is perhaps the most ambitious is what you call the nomothetic approach to um, right. paleontology. What is it and what's at stake in it, And I guess? Sure. Yeah, well, this, this division between so-called nomothetic and ideographic uh, science is something that goes back to the 19th century. It's a, it's a German idea. Um, and basically, the idea is that nomothetic science is science that is geared towards producing laws. Um, and ideographic science is science that basically just kind of documents empirical cases. Um, and, and Gould latched onto this. I think he liked anything that sounded, uh, you know, fancy and German. Uh, and uh, or had Latinate, you know, terms or something like that. But he latched onto this idea that what paleo, what paleobiology really needed to be doing was, was, you know, producing, um, laws, was, was making generalized, uh, lawful, lawful statements about the history of life. And so he, he starts pushing this idea early on in the, in the, in the 1970s. And, um, you know, it gets interpreted in a variety of ways. I mean, I think one way that one early way that it gets interpreted is that uh, nomothetic paleontology will be paleontology that does not deal with specific cases. Um, so, you know, does not look at a particular slice of the fossil record and try to, you know, t- try to determine some generalities from that empirical evidence, but rather which will make you know, broad claims, perhaps in the form of equations or simulations uh, about the history of life that are in some way idealizations of the way, you know, kind of the messy fossil record actually works. So here they're really taking a page out of um, the theoretical ecology movement that produced uh, the theory of island biogeography and and the work of people, um, people like... Um, uh, E.O. Wilson and MacArthur and Hutchinson, who were ecologists who developed this kind of um, mathematical modeling heuristic approach to the study of uh, living populations. And so I think for, for Gould and for Schopf and um, to some degree Raup in the 1970s, nomothetic paleontology was paleontology that was applying this kind of heuristic approach. We're using models as um, as a kind of a way of developing general insights into the um, into the history of life uh, that may be oversimplifications or idealizations of what the empirical record tells us, but uh, which kind of stand as, uh, if not laws, at least very broad generalizations. Um, and so that that really is very much the agenda of paleobiology, uh, as as Gould and 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 um, Shaw. Alp are pushing it in in the 1970s, although it does change then in the 1980s. Right, and I guess there's different. I mean, I guess can you tease out? I mean, how is it exactly is the it's is it going to be heuristic, and what is the relationship exactly to the fossil record? Sure. Um, yeah, uh, so, I mean, you know, in, in terms of a, you know, a heuristic model, I mean, you can think about in, in ecology, take something like the species area law, which just tells us how many species we expect to find in a particular area. Now, that's something that's, that's based certainly on some empirical documentation, but, um, you know, it's an equation, sort of like, uh, you know, an equation of physics that tells us something about, um, in a, in a general case, um, how all populations should, should look. 
and, and paleontologists were looking for, paleobiologists were looking for something, something similar. Um, and, uh, what, what, what Tom Schopf was really, um, keen on was developing what he called gas laws of paleontology. So, you know, the, the gas laws tell us, um, something about the density of particles of, of, in a volume of gas. Um, and, you know, it's a simple equation. And, and, and Schopf really literally thought perhaps we could have simple equations that would tell us some dynamics of evolution change. Um, and, uh, and this was very much connected to a project that Schopf and Gould and Raup, um, and eventually, yeah, Kosky were, uh, working on in the 1970s, which was to use, uh, computers to, uh, simulate in a very idealized way, uh, evolutionary uh, lineages, uh, to essentially s- simulate evolution, uh, and, um, generate using random generators, generate, um, branching lineages, and then step back and take a look at the sorts of patterns that were being produced, and then compare those to the actual patterns in the fossil record as a way of testing certain hypotheses about how- Right. And one of the hypotheses that's relevant here is just about the randomness, of evolution and extinction, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So the, the main hypothesis that this uh, so-called, um, um, called the stochastic simulation um, program uh, was trying to do was to test whether, in fact, we could um, we could potentially understand the the, the branching processes, the, the branching patterns that that we see in the fossil record as being. Um, produced purely randomly and, and, and not through, well, I guess not through the normal kinds of selective pressures that biologists, uh, normally associate, uh, evolution and, you know, periods of speciation and extinction with. So in, in some ways this was a, you know, very radical kind of hypothesis. And, you know, all they really were trying to argue is that could argue for, um, you know, randomness as a, as a more prominent in, in, in evolution, not specifically in particular cases we, we had assumed that evolution was random. They certainly weren't trying to get rid of natural selection, certainly weren't trying to get rid of adaptation. They were simply saying, let's not, uh, let's not ignore uh, the factors in evolution um, that might turn out to be important in some cases. Right. And that re- continues to be something that they say to evolutionary biologists. One of the things that um, also comes out of the book is that how timely and time-sensitive, I guess, the development of paleobiology was because of its dependence on computation uh, and increased computational capacity, I guess. So it's not just um, simulations that really that rely on computation, um, but the field. Of, what else? What else are people using? I guess computers to be able to do. Sure. Well, I mean, the other the other really major way that that computers come into play are in uh, in, in terms of Databases, so so storing and then processing uh, paleontological data. So people had been collecting lists of, of you know the the various taxa, various taxonomic groups in the history of life for you know over a hundred years uh, in big books. And what computers allow you to do is is to you know transfer that information uh, to an electronic format. That can be sorted and analyzed in all kinds of interesting ways. So, um, in addition to doing things like, yeah, making pretty simulations of, uh, idealized shell forms or doing these 
simulations of uh, randomly branching phylogenies, uh, paleontologists by the mid-1970s start putting their data into computers and then also using com the computers to perform statistical analyses that would be uh, either uh, very difficult and time-consuming or impossible uh, without, without their aid. Okay. Um, when Gould refers to, I mean, famously refers to rerunning the tape of life, I mean, is it a computer tape that he's talking about? I, you know, that's that's something that that I've often uh, that 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 I've, I've I've long thought was maybe the case. Uh, you know, it's a pity that uh, I started this project. Uh, it's a pity that he died young for obviously for a variety of reasons. But 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 personally, I, there are a lot of questions I would have liked to have asked him, and and that's one of them because of course. An audio tape doesn't make any sense because if you rewind a, a, an audio tape, it always plays the same thing. Right. So I tend to think that he he did have in mind a, a, a computer tape um, because the mainframes that they were using in those days were using you know magnetic tape storage. And um, I'm thinking you know this metaphor first starts popping up around 1976, 1977. I'm thinking that he's thinking about a computer program that gets rerun on tape. But, you know, I, that, that's unfortunately, unless there's a letter somewhere in Gould's <laughs> uh, archive, uh, which which has now finally just been opened at, at Stanford University, unless there's a letter in there, that's, uh, I think, something that's never going to be definitively settled. Okay. And it's the tapes, the, the, those tapes in particular about running these sort of simulations that, that rely on random patterning, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. I think that there's, I mean, the, the, the metaphor comes up Directly in the context of this this random simulation work that they're that they're doing, and I think that's exactly what he's thinking. I think he's thinking that you know we rerun this program, and every time we rerun it, we get a different result. You know, I think that that's precisely the metaphor that he's drawing on initially when he when he presents that. Okay. So the other big idea that I th that you think comes out of paleontology and that speaks to evolutionary biology relates to hierarchy and ideas about macroevolution. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And you also talk, I mean, there's a famous evolutionary biology that sort of welcomes paleobiologists back to the high table of, of, right. uh, of the evolutionary synthesis. So what is it that um, paleobiologists are bringing to this high table? Sure. So by the, by the early 1980s, uh, paleobiologists are starting to see some success in their, in their movement. Um, and one of the kind of most visible tokens of that success is this statement that John Maynard Smith, a uh, famous British geneticist, makes in 1984 in the journal Nature um, in, a, in a little opinion piece that he writes titled uh, Paleontology at the High Table. Um, and at the end of this essay, he, he makes the comment, you know, paleontologists have too long been missing from the high table uh, of evolutionary theory. Uh, welcome back. Um, and, you know, uh, the, that, that passage has been selectively quoted many times by paleontologists, and it seems to indicate sort of a dramatic success. You know, the high table metaphor, of course, is a very British metaphor. It's this metaphor from, you know, the colleges in Cambridge and Oxford where, uh, you know, the, the students all sit in the hall and the, and the, the fellows and the faculty sit up at a raised uh, raised table on a raised platform at the end of the hall. And so the idea is, of course, you know, now paleontology is getting to join the big boys. Um, certainly, Maynard Smith's uh, statement does indicate that uh, biologists are beginning to accept certain ideas in paleontology. And, and, and the two ideas that he's directly referring to are um, these new ideas about hierarchy in macroevolution and also to new paleontological theories that are centered around extinction. 
uh, and, and particularly mass extinction. Uh, and, and so, I, you know, I argue at the end of the book that kind of the two crucial um, successes are um, uh, our macroevolution and, and extinction theory, and, and in some ways these two ideas uh, are, uh, are joined. Uh, the, the macroevolutionary synthesis that people like um, Gould, but also Steve Stanley and Niles Eldridge and others are trying to push um, basically presents the traditional Darwinian understanding of uh, of, of evolution through natural selection as being only one component uh, or one level of a broader hierarchical understanding of, of evolutionary processes that extends from the level of the gene all the way up to the level of um, the, the higher taxonomic categories like the, you know, the, the, the family. Um, and, uh, and the argument is that we can't use the same, uh, we can't understand the same mechanisms necessarily as operating at every single level of hierarchy. So what, you know, what you get is, um, at the population level is natural selection, just as Darwin and then the, you know, the, the population uh, geneticists who, um, who contributed to the modern synthesis, uh, proposed. But when you get up to the higher taxonomic levels, you get other kinds of processes, things like species selection, where, um, where in, in, you know, entire taxonomic groups can have properties that um, contribute to their overall success or, 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 or failure on the evolutionary playing field that are different, in some ways disconnected, or as Steve Stanley um, somewhat famously said, decoupled from uh, the lower uh, hierarchy. Um, processes. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's a kind of controversial idea. Um, it certainly gets a lot of attention in the, in the early 1980s, but the biologists, the geneticists, even people like John Maynard Smith are constantly saying, show us how this works. Mm-hmm. How, you know, with genetics, we can understand entities like species uh, or higher taxonomic uh, categories as having, um, you know, as, 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 as being vehicles for selection. You know, it's something that the geneticists have a lot of trouble with. Uh, so I would say that macroevolution is very important uh, in terms of attracting attention to paleontology, but it's also controversial. I think that the less controversial uh, kind of success story that paleontology had was with extinction, and I think that that's really what Maynard Smith is, has more in mind in the statement that he makes in 1984, which is that paleontologists really fairly definitively demonstrated that we cannot... Um, leave extinction out of our understanding of evolution. That extinctions, uh, and particularly mass extinctions, where, um, you know, large numbers of species, genera, even families, uh, disappear in a kind of geological blink of an eye. These things have happened in the history. They have had a profound impact on uh, the development of, uh, of evolution, uh, by, you know, removing uh, certain, certain in uh, one swipe of the brush or uh, changing the ecological and evolutionary landscape and the selective uh, regimes that have existed. So it's really a, a extinction, I think, that, that is uh, what, what finally gets paleontology uh, taken seriously to the extent that it is taken seriously by evolutionary biologists. Okay. 
we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, but why don't you tell us how you're going to continue being a historian of paleontology? What are you working on now? Projects. Um, I'm writing a book on extinction, actually, where what I'm really trying to do is take a look at the relationship between biological ideas about extinction from the mid-19th century uh, up to the present day, um, the relationship between those biological ideas and cultural values that surround um, uh, extinction and endangerment and diversity. So I'm trying to look at the ways that the biologists have, have influenced how we think about uh, the, the kind of diversity of the biological world uh, through their discussions of extinction and how particular cultural values at particular times have influenced what biologists have said about extinction. So in the 19th century, I argue there was a, a lack of real um, appreciation or concern for what we now call biodiversity, which mm-hmm. is your concern. And, and one of my arguments is that um, uh, what changes is our understanding of extinction. Um, so that's a, that's a book that I'll be writing over the next couple of years, hopefully a bit shorter than this last book that I wrote, and uh, and 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 aimed at a, a bit a bit of a broader audience than than the than the book that I that I just wrote. Um, and then another project is uh, a project, collaborative project at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, where I work. Uh, on the history of, of data and databases. Um, so we have a big project where we're trying to historicize how data and databases became so important in a variety of sciences. And my angle on that is looking at the development of uh, data collection, um, storage, and analysis in natural history disciplines like paleontology. Okay, thanks so much, David. That was my conversation with David Sapkowski about his new book, Rereading the Fossil Record, The Growth of Paleobiology as an Evolutionary Discipline. For the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society, I'm Patrick Slaney. Thanks.